I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, unique insights into your favorite authors, plus keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Christina Ariola, the senior books editor at Bustle. I don't know if any of you have seen the site, but it is geared towards young women that delivers everything you want to know, see, and read right now. It was a funny coincidence that the day after I interviewed Christina, a friend of mine forwarded an article from bustle and she's a a woman in her 50s and I said oh see you're so cool and in this is this is for young women so obviously it's for not just young women and stay tuned after my conversation with Christina to hear my chat with author and friend Amy Bloom who was at RJ Julia recently to launch her new book called White Houses which is just one of the most wonderful novels, and it's about Eleanor Roosevelt and her relationship with Lorena Hickok. But first, my discussion with Christina from Bustle. We are joined today by Christina Ariola, who is the senior books editor at Bustle. And for those of you that don't know the website, bustle.com, it is great fun to see everything they've got going on. They deliver what you want to know and see and read right now, like all these fun articles. And it especially is striking to me looking at it that it's great if you're passionate about making a difference or connections or just kind of making your mark. So tell us a little bit more. I gave sort of a brief thing about Bustle, but how would you describe Bustle? Because we might have some listeners that are not familiar with it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. So Bustle is a website for millennial women. Basically, all of the people who write for Bustle are, you know, right there in the Bustle readership. We're all super politically engaged, um, but we have a lot more interest beyond that, um, one of which is books. And Bustle, I think, is really exciting because it is one of the very few women's websites that has a dedicated book section still. Yeah. You know, I think that these days you will see occasional book content from a lot of publications, and it's, you know, always super well done. I think there's so many people that are doing really great book coverage, but it's really rare that you have a website for women where there's one editor whose only job it is is just to do books. So, Christina, how'd you get this plum job? How did I get this job? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty perfect job. How'd you get your start, actually? I went to school for journalism, um, so the journalism major. And right out of college, I got a job at a niche magazine called Latina Magazine. Um, And I was basically just doing lifestyle content. I was, you know, writing a little bit about everything, just writing about things that I was passionate about. And one of those things was books. Um, so I really went out of my way to do books coverage, to pitch that to my editors and, you know, to make the contacts that I needed to make that the interviews happen or the reviews happen. Um, but I never really thought of it as something that I could do full time mm. uh, because, like you said, these jobs are one in a million. But as it so happens, about two and a half years after I moved to New York, I was on Twitter and I saw that someone posted that Bustle was hiring a books editor. And I had been obviously a longtime Bustle fan. I was reading Bustle long before I worked here. And, you know, it's kind of a boring story, but basically I just applied for the job. And I don't know, I guess I impressed them. I definitely uh, was passionate about the job. I, you know, came in with experience actually writing about books. And, of course, I was a huge reader. And, you know, I really had ideas about where I wanted to take the book section. You know, I think that it all panned out. So Bustle made the decision to have a book critic. And as you said, it is unusual among sites like Bustle to have a committed book critic. What prompted the publishers of Bustle to go in that direction? So Bustle was started in, um, I believe, 2013. And I actually did not work here when it was founded. So I can't speak to exactly why they thought it was important for there to be a books editor. But I know that now we continue to think it's important because I think just, you know, among the staff here, we read so much. Like, we know that millennial women are the ones who are driving book sales. And so it would seem really phenomenally silly not to be 
telling them, you know, about the books that are coming out. This is just such a huge part of what it means to be a millennial woman today is, you know, what are you watching? You know, what are you doing? What are you reading? And it just seems like we'd be doing our audience a huge disservice if we were completely, you know, ignoring this huge uh, industry for them. So, Christina, as a baby boomer woman, it is, I cannot tell you how heartening it is to me to think that a energetic, millennial-focused website like Bustle and a young, talented woman like you are as committed to books because, you know, we worry that millennials are not going to be reading books. And watching the kind of energy that you bring to it and the kind of commitment that Bustle brings to it definitely makes for a good day for a baby boomer woman. Woman. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I think it's it's funny because I just think that, um, you know, before Bustle, there wasn't really books coverage aimed at millennials. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that that was one of the things that I was really passionate about changing is, you know, I kind of wanted to get away from doing the more traditional reviews um, because while I love reviews, I read reviews. A lot of my friends don't read reviews. A lot of my friends who read, you know, maybe like one or two books a month, aren't like going to the New York Times to read a review for a book. And that doesn't make those any less valid. I think that those yeah. absolutely have a place. But they're more looking for like, you know, well, I really like Lady Bird. Like, what are nine books like Lady Bird that I can read next? Or, you know, I'm really into thrillers right now. What are like the five good thrillers that are coming out this month? And so I think it was kind of just like reframing the way that I thought about books coverage mm. and making it a little bit more accessible to people who maybe wouldn't identify as a, you know, a quote unquote reader. Um, but who read a lot of books. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, because I do think that there is, you know, a subset of readers who are, like, very passionate about reading, right? Like, it's very much a part of their identity. It's very much part of my identity. Like, you know, one of the first things I tell people about myself is, you know, I love books. I'm a reader. And that was true even before I had this job. And then I think that there are also people who read a lot, but that's, like, you know, just one part of everything they do. They volunteer a lot. They watch TV, you know, Mm -hmm. they go to the movies, like they do all these different things and they want to figure out where books plays into all those different aspects of their life. So that's why you'll kind of see that Bustle does things a little bit differently. Like, you know, we'll frame things a little differently. Like, oh, this is the book to read if you really like that podcast. Oh, this is the book to read if you really like this TV show and, you know, you just can't wait for it to come back. Um, And so I think that that it's really unique, and it sort of is, you know, pushing our book's content in a, in a different direction and towards a different audience of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Christina, you and I both appeared um, in the same column that Ellen Gammerman wrote in the Wall Street Journal about the books to look forward to in the winter. And the book that you picked was The Astonishing Color of After. So share with us why you love that book and what it's about. Yeah. So this is um, a wonderful book written by a debut author, Emily Pan, um, and it is, it's a YA book, um, which I initially didn't intend to include a YA book in that list because I did think it, it might have been a little bit off-branch for the Wall Street Journal audience, but ultimately I just really fell in love with this book. It's this really beautiful literary YA about a girl whose mom dies by suicide. And the girl um, is convinced that she has come back to Earth in the shape of a bird. Um, and so she kind of goes through this journey of discovering who her mom is after her death. And that kind of takes her back to Taiwan, which is where her mom's parents um, live. Um, and it's just this really beautiful story about kind of discovering that your parents have lives beyond <laughs> you, yeah. um, which I think is sort of one of those things that is really it, – it, plays a big part in the life of a lot of millennials. I think that that moment, I think, comes in that, like, 18 to, like, 25 age range when you're just like, oh, wow, my parents have other, like, they have, like, a personality that extends beyond just taking (laughs) care of me and, like, you know, buying my stuff or whatever. Um, And so I just thought it was, like, a really beautiful story. I actually, my mom passed away when I was pretty young, and so for me, it felt very personal. Mm. Um, but I also just thought that it was just so wonderfully crafted, and it really was just this personal and touching coming of age story that I thought that a lot of you know that a lot of people beyond the young adult age range could relate to. Mm. Was your mom a reader? My mom 
Sort of. She wasn't a reader the way that I'm a reader. Um, but she definitely, like, introduced me to, like, Edgar Allan Poe. And she was really into, you know, Margaret Atwood before Margaret Atwood was, like, the cool thing that she is right now. Mm. Um, so I definitely do have some fond book memories with her. Cool. And what are you finding millennials like to read? Yeah, you know, I think millennials, at least the Bustle audience, they like to read a lot of different things. Um, I think thrillers and true crime continue to just be... Just incredibly popular. Um, But I mean, the YA coverage does really, really well. And I Mm. think part of that is that a lot of places don't cover YA. Um, And so I think people are looking for that. And I also think that it's become a lot more um, acceptable in the past couple of years. Or I mean, it was always acceptable, but I think people are just sort of realizing that YA books, you know, aren't just for young adults, that they, you know, can also be for millennials and for, you know, baby boomers and for all the rest. Um, I definitely think that, you know, I mean, Bustle is a woman's lifestyle site, so I tend to focus primarily on female authors. Um, memoirs do really well. I personally am a huge Cheryl Strayed fan, and I think that anything in the vein of Cheryl Strayed mm. always does really well. Um, and I think people just really like nonfiction as well. We have had a lot of success with nonfiction content, um, not just memoirs, but also, you know, just sort of more even service-y nonfiction. Um, I think that's and definitely feminist nonfiction. Did you see, Christina, that, um, you know, Cheryl Strayed's book, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is her compilation of her advice columns uh, that yeah. she wrote under Dear Sugar, I think I read that they're making a play of it or it is a play? Yeah, so this is, this is my favorite book, Tiny Beautiful Things. Mine too. Um, <laughs> And they actually, there is a play of it. I, I saw it um, over Thanksgiving break when my dad was in town. And what'd you um, think of it? Yeah, so it's at the Public Theater in New York City. Um, I'm not sure if they have plans to expand it. Um, and it stars Mia Varvatos, who was in um, Oh, really? Like, Greek Wedding. Yeah. It's actually, I was a little bit skeptical because the book, obviously, it doesn't have, you know, a narrative arc. It's, you know, a series of the essays that she wrote as Dear Sugar. Um, but they give, like, the narrative arc ends up being the story of Cheryl Strayed becoming Sugar and then coming out as Sugar since it was anonymous when she was in the process of writing it. Um, and it's just really beautifully done. Um, I definitely was skeptical, but I... Mm. I bawled my eyes out. Like, I cried the entire time. Um, I thought my best friend and my dad and the three of us were just, we were a mess afterwards. It was really, it was just completely, reading the book for me was a really life-changing experience, and I I returned to it so often. And so seeing the play just felt really personal, and it was just like a really profound moment in my life, especially to see with my dad. Yeah, that's, I think Tiny Beautiful Things is one of those books that renews your uh, both appreciation and fascination with humanity. And I think that Cheryl's sense of wit on the one hand, but unbelievable kindness on the other, is does make it the kind of book that you could read the letters over and over again. And I'm thrilled she's doing that uh, that column in the New York Times now on Thursdays because I think voices like hers need to be heard more. Yeah, she really does feel like a once-in-a-generation voice. And I think what's really beautiful about Tiny Beautiful Things is, so So my own experience with Tiny Beautiful Things, Cheryl Strayed lost her mom when she was in her early 20s. Um, and I lost my mom when I was in my early 20s. And actually, a, a publicist um, who works in, in publishing was like, she reached out and she was like, I also lost my mom when I was really young. And I know that you are being, you know, just completely flooded with, you know, people reaching out right now. But I'm telling you that you have to read this book. Mm. Um, and I was like, okay, like, you know, I responded politely, whatever. And then a couple months later, I saw her and she's like, no, like, you really need to set, you really need to read this <laughs> book. I'm going to send it to you. So she sent me the book, Tiny Beautiful Things, got that orange cover, like, it's I think the, there's a quote on it. It's like, let yourself be gutted, start here. Mm. And I was like, okay. I was like pretty skeptical. Um, but I started reading it and just couldn't put it down. For, yeah. I, I think, you know, I read it over the course of like two or three days. Um, and since then, I, I am I annotate my books to death. Like I just, I underline, I highlight, I write in the margins. Like I know that people have controversial opinions about that, but that's just the way I do it. 
Um, and so the way that I did it with this book is the first time I went around, I like underlined in purple. And then the second time around, I underlined in pink. <laughs> and so, and like the third time, it's like an orange. And so if you look at this book, it's just like the a progression rainbow of like, yeah, it's like, like the rainbow of like the progression of my thoughts while reading this book. And every time I see something different. Um, and it's, it's just been such like a, it's such a beautiful shareable book as well. Mm. Like there have been times in my friend's life where I'm like, I think you really need to read the Cheryl Strait essay. And so I'll, you know, I'll either buy them a copy of the book or I'll, you know, print out the particular column from Dear Sugar because they are, they're still online. Um, and like highlight the portions that I need them to read or whatever. Yeah. And I just feel like it's just one of those books that if you just, word of mouth like I feel like I just want to share it with everybody and I feel like there's an essay for every life experience it's just been such a life-changing book for me yeah so speaking of the Cheryl Strayed book how has uh having the job as a senior books editor at Bustle changed the way you read that's a good question um you know actually I feel like for a while there was like a year the first year of this job I was like very very excited about everything I was like I'm gonna read every book like I, I was reading like voraciously I was reading like I'd never read before like I'm super excited about all of the like advanced copies of things I was getting and then I kind of like hit a wall where I was like oh my god like I'm never gonna like have read as much as I should have <laughs> like I always felt like I you know was 10 books behind everybody that I you know, would see at, like, literary parties and everything. And I just got, like, super frustrated. Um, and so I set a plan for myself where now I read um, four books for work. So that's just, like, books that are forthcoming, books that we plan to review, books that we're going to put in, you know, content for bustle. Um, and then every fourth book I let myself read something that I, I say it's for fun, Um which is like a bad word because a lot of the books that I read for work are, I also enjoy and I think are fun. Um, but I just felt like there's so many books that I missed, you know, like yeah. from last year, from like 200 years ago that I just never felt like I got a chance to read because I was always so focused on like all of these books are coming out in 2018 and I like need to read all of them. And do you, um, and do you, yeah. do you now finish less books because you want to, because you, if you're not loving it right away, you want to move on to the next one? Um, I feel like I was doing that before, but now that I have this system where I'm like, okay, four books and then like I take a break and read something that I'm really excited about, I feel like I have been finishing things. Um, more than I was before. Yeah, I, um, I find since in the almost 30 years that I've been a bookseller, before I was a bookseller, that I would never not finish a book. You know, if I made the commitment to start it, I was, you know, I was I was sticking with it. And yeah. I just find that the sort of onslaught or joy of all the other books I want to get to makes me put down a book faster. And I and it makes me a little bit anxious because I think, oh, what if the, you know, what if the brilliant part is like five pages from now? Yeah, this, I feel like there are a lot of, like, people have a lot of different ideas about this. So I definitely am the type of person where once I start something, I really like to finish it. Um, yeah. But I'm starting to think that that might not be the best strategy, that maybe if I am not into something like 50 pages in, that maybe I just, like, have to move on. I Like, there's, there's like, no good way. There's no science to it, you know? So you kind of just have to go with your gut. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like sometimes trying to just slog through a book that you are not engaged by can really just, like, turn you off, you know? Like, it's, like... Like, it doesn't just last for the duration of that book is the problem. I feel like if I finally finish a book that I just was not thrilled to be reading, I'm just, like, kind of ruined for, like, a week. You know, I don't want to read anything. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've kind of tried to re reprioritize and really focus on stuff that is really, like, that I really find, like, propelling me and it's, like, engaging me and thrilling me. Um, and, you know, it's, like, it's so funny. So I, I just read... Um, the new Leslie Jameson book, mm -hmm. The Recovering, which comes out in April, I believe. Right. And that, that book was enormous. It's like, I think it's like 500 pages. Um, and so I was really kind of nervous about starting it because I was like, if I start this book, I'm going to be like, I can't read anything else for like a week and a half because I'm going to be re I'm going to be reading this book at 500 pages. Um, and I was. I, I, it took me a long time to finish it. 
but I was just so, like, I loved that book. Like, mm. I couldn't, like, it was one of those things where I was like, I have to, like, just take, like, a five-minute break of work so I can go read, or, like, I can't wait to get on the train so I can read. Just, like, one of those books that was just, like, five more minutes, five more minutes, five more minutes, five more minutes, that I just want to keep reading. Don't you love that? Um, Don't you just love, love that? that feeling. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that probably, like, a year ago, I would have probably just, like, assigned that book out or, like, not tried to read it because I thought that it would just take up too much time. And I, I think that now that I've, like, settled in a little bit more, I'm like, okay, it's okay that I have, like, I'm never going to be able to read everything. Like, I'm always going to feel like everyone is better read than I am. So I guess it's just probably better to, you know, Yeah. And, you know, everybody feels that way, whether they're reading, you know, you know, 10 books a month or 20 books a month or five books a month. Those of us that are readers, I mean, the great thing is the the opportunities to read more and then you'll run in, you know, you will have read a ton of books and then I will have read a ton of books and our lists might be totally different. Then you think, oh, I've got to read everything that Christine is talking about. You know, that. how did yeah. I not know all <laughs> those books? But that's sort of the fun of it. it Here's is, a, yeah, I was actually, I don't know if you've read it yet, but um, or if you're planning on reading it, you don't have to read it. <laughs> but the new Zadie Smith essay collection, feel free. Yeah. It just came out on Tuesday. I read There's online. I read your, I read your um, column on it. Yeah. And it made me want to move it. It's it. It's in the pile, but I moved it up in the pile. Yeah. Well, the good thing about it is that it's an essay collection. So I, you know, I, I didn't finish it. I read like half of it, and I probably will return to the other half at some point. Um, but there is an essay in there um, where she kind of talks about the fact that she's always felt very insecure about the fact that she was only really good at one thing. Hmm. Like she says, like, I go to these like dinner parties and people are like talking about movies and people are talking about physics and people are talking about music and like all of these different things. And she's like, I can't talk about any of this stuff. The only thing I know how to talk about is novels. Um, and I'm just like, I, I was reading this and I was like, what? Like, this is Baby Smith. Like, yeah. like, I cannot imagine like a more like revered literary figure living literary figure than Sadie Smith. And she's, like, going to dinner parties and feeling like she is not, like, worldly enough to participate. Um, And so it was kind of, like, a very, you know, light bulb moment where you're like, okay, if Sadie Smith feels this way, I think it's okay for me to feel this way. You know, one of my closest friends uh, is the CEO of Powell's, uh, which is the renowned bookstore in Portland, Oregon. And she has a she had a line that she shared with me that I think is good for us to all keep in mind. And that is we're always comparing our inside selves to everybody else's outside self. And therefore, you can't help but always fail by comparison. That is a great line. Isn't it? I love I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's Miriam Sansa's line, but but I steal it, and you, you're more than welcome to go ahead and steal it as well. <laughs> yeah, that that is amazing. Um, yeah, because I think it, it is it is one of those things that everyone thinks about, but no one talks about. Just constantly feeling like you're the imposter, um, right? And so it is it is nice to see that validated um, by other authors. Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you two more questions before we run out of time. One is, I read that you're going to be a delegate contributor to the 2018 BookCon, which is fashioned after Comic-Con and has been a wildly successful effort at making books be cool. So kudos to you for being a delegate there. What will that mean you're doing? Yeah, I actually, I did not know that I was going to be a delegate, but I was a delegate last year. So I can tell you a little bit about what that experience was like. Okay, great. Um, So yeah, so BookCon is this, you know, phenomenal two-day-long event that takes place usually in New York City, but I think occasionally they'll they'll mix it up and they'll, like, take people to Chicago or or Washington, D.C. And it's basically just this incredible two-day convention where you can see all of your favorite authors in conversation with your other favorite authors, and you can hang out with books people, and there are all of these, like, booths and, you know, activities and things you can do with publishers and booksellers. Um, And it really just feels like this incredible like two-day book party um, (laughs) where you're just hanging out with other people who are also really excited about books. Um, But last year, it was very YA-focused. So we, I did a ton of panels with other, you know, YA authors. I did one with um, all of the authors who are writing um, 
So Random House has a series of books that are YA versions of your favorite superhero stories, hmm. um, uh, DC superhero stories. So there's um, Batman and Wonder Woman have already come out, and Superman and Catwoman are coming out um, within the next, like, 12 months. Um, and so I did a panel with the four of them, and it was, like, very cool talking about superheroes and what they would have been like as teenagers and kind of the way that these authors are reimagining these incredibly beloved, incredibly well-known tales and putting their own spin on them. Um, and it was just a very cool experience. It felt like the closest I think I probably will ever feel in books to being, like, a rock star. Like, people <laughs> were very excited. Like, people stormed the stage after several of the panels. They were so excited to meet their favorite authors. Great. Um, and it was just, like, a very, it was very cool to see all of these people who, like, paid money to be there, like, sometimes, like, traveled from out of town to just come and, like, talk about books and to, like, be in the presence of authors that they admire. Um, and I just, I thought it was, I thought it was an incredible experience, and I would be so happy to do that again. And I think that this year, actually, they're expanding it a bit, so it's not just YA, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be thriller authors this year, um, and so they're including a lot more of, like, the genre fiction and kind of the stuff that tends to get overlooked a little bit, mm-hmm. um, so I'm super excited about that. So here's my last question, which I like to ask all our guests, is what is the book that changed your life? I will say that, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, I kind of hate this answer, but it's the, it's the true answer, is the book that changed my life is Pride and Prejudice. I read it when I was in seventh grade, um, and I specifically remember the moment that it was assigned to us by our teacher because we'd just come off this like eight week section of class where we read Lord of the Rings. And I was very upset that we were now going to have to read a Regency romance. I was like, are you kidding me? Like I just read about like orcs and, you know, like elves for eight weeks. Now you're going to make me read about like a romance and ballrooms. And I was really, really upset. Um, but I like, took it home that night, and I started reading, you know, the couple of chapters that were assigned, and I just stayed up all night and read the whole book. Wow. Um, and then the next day, I went home, and I read it again. And it was the first time where I think that I have just, like, it just clicked. Right? I'd always been a big reader. Like, I had spent my whole childhood reading, but it was in that moment where I was like, this is it. Like, I just want to read books for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, you know, since then, I've I've read Pride and Prejudice so many times. And what was it, Christina, about that book that you think made, that prompted that reaction in you? You know, I've thought about that a lot. There is so much to love about that book. It's almost hard to say what it is Mm. that keeps people coming back. I think it was the first time where I just, I was like thrown for a loop, you know? Like, when you think about it, Pride and Prejudice really has a twist. Like, I know we talk about like the Gone Girl twist and the girl on the train twist. But there was a twist in Pride and Prejudice and I did not see it coming. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I think it was just the narration is so good. And and you become so immersed in that world. so immersed in that world. And I think that you just find yourself, like it, it's, it's a very introspective experience reading that book as well. Because as the characters go through all of these different, like they, they change as people so much throughout the book. Their opinions change so much. And your opinions change, too. Mm. Um, like, you find yourself believing, you know, 10 different things about Darcy by the time that book is over and 10 different things about Lizzie by the time it's over. Um, and every single time I read it, I find something new. You know, I think the first probably five times I read it, I wasn't thinking about anybody but Darcy. And then, like, when I got a little older, I was like, well, Lizzie, like, there's a lot in there, too, that we need to talk about. Mm. Um, and so I just think it's one of those books that I could, I probably will go back to my entire life and will never be able to fully figure out why it is so important to me. Well, Christina, it has been just a pleasure to have you on. I hope we'll get you back on. Maybe we'll have you on after BookCon and you'll let yes. us know everything <laughs> you saw and the trends and what you learned about and were excited about. Yeah, I would be happy to come back on. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. And, you know, thank you and thank you to Bustle for having such a commitment um, to books. I think, you know, you and I probably share a belief that the more people read, um, the the more 
the more they'll make a difference in the world and have an understanding about a breadth of experience and people. So doing it for our millennials in the way that you're doing it is a real contribution. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Thanks again to Christina. And now I'll be checking out that Bustle website. Now let's get to my conversation with Amy. I am just delighted today to welcome Amy Bloom to Just the Right Book. Um, we'll, we'll start with some facts, which you probably know, but are important to know. She is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, three collections of short stories, a children's book, a groundbreaking collection of essays. She's been a nominee for the National Book Award, the National Book Critic Circles Award. Her stories have appeared in Best American Short Stories, Prize Stories, the O. Henry Awards, numerous anthologies. She's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, O Magazine, and Vogue, among other publications. And she's also written pilot scripts for cable and network. She created and wrote the excellent series called State of Mind, starring Lily Taylor. She lives in Connecticut. She's now Wesleyan University Shapiro Silverberg Professor of Creative Writing. And she's one of my most favorite writers (laughs) in the whole world. And that's really more important right now than all those accolades. But uh, she is here today for her new book called White Houses. There is no shortage of analysis, writing, and viewpoints about Eleanor Roosevelt, yet our understanding of her as a woman is artfully, tenderly reflected in Amy Bloom's newest book, White Houses, a biofiction narrated by the journalist Lorena Hickok, first friend, lover, and adoring fan of Eleanor. Welcome, Amy Bloom. Thank you. So this is your debut Right for the book before you're right beginning, this minute. Right beginning this minute. Uh, the tour, and you know every book of yours that I read, I love. So I I, I don't even know if I could pick a favorite, but right now this is going to be my new favorite. And one of the things that, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, okay, now. What kind of research did you do? I mean, we're going to get to the story of Lorena Hickok, who's your narrator. We know a lot about Eleanor Roosevelt, but the war is going on. Franklin Roosevelt's the president. There's an enormous amount of historical things. What what did you do for research for the book? I feel that there is very little you could ask me about America during World War II or the Depression or the Roosevelts that I couldn't answer fairly thoroughly. (laughs) I mean, I spent a lot of time at Hyde Park. Uh, at the Roosevelt Library, which is a joy. Um, I got a lot of help from the librarians at Wesleyan University. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a lot of books out. It's not as if there are only a few scraps of paper about the Roosevelt. So there are endless biographies, and there's there's Ken Burns, and then there there are good movies and the terrible movies, all of which I watched, um, because sometimes you get tired of reading. And then there was Blanche Weisenkoch's biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, which is so spectacular, especially the first two volumes. And that was where I first read about the relationship with Lorena Hickok. And even so, it's not like Blanche Weisenkoch says, you know, extra, 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 read all about it, salacious information. She says... There seems to be a lot of evidence that this was a romantic relationship. And it was kind of matter of fact in her book. She's very matter of fact, and she refers to the 3,000 letters between them because they did often write four and five times a day when Mm -hmm. they were separated. And um, Lorena, in fact, had burned what she felt were the racier letters because, as she said to Anna Roosevelt, Eleanor's daughter, your mother wasn't always discreet. Even so, even with all of that evidence, when Blanche Weisenkoch wrote her books, she was pilloried in the mainstream press. She was pilloried by conventional historians going, obviously, you had an agenda. You wanted to think that Eleanor Roosevelt was a lesbian because it makes such a good story, but there's no evidence for that. She was just an effusive Victorian lady. And then I read the letters, and I thought, you know, here's something I've never said to one of my pals. I've never said, I long to kiss the southeast corner of your lips and Mm. hold you in my arms. I haven't gotten that letter from you. You have not. (laughs) No, I know. And I I imagine it's a little disappointing, but still. Or I have not ever written 
darling, I feel terrible. When I spoke to you tonight, I could not say I love you, I adore you, because little Jimmy, one of her sons, was standing right next to the telephone. Mm. And I thought, I don't see that kind of conversation between pals. Yeah. So reading the letters, also in their beautiful penmanship, but reading the letters was wonderful and informative. Was there anything that surprised you? Were there papers that you found that seemingly hadn't been read or that surprised you? I mean, you, you, you came into it knowing a lot, and then your research was obviously accretively informative. I mean, my growing sense of who Lorena Hickok was, mm. um, because you really don't get much of a sense of her in most of the other works. Right, you know, right. The depth of her work as a journalist, the depth of her work as an investigator during the Depression, um, crossing the country to see what people's conditions were in the, in the depths of the Depression as an investigator, that kind of stuff. You know, you also don't get much of a sense of her... I mean, she has a letter in which she scolds Eleanor and says, "You, I see in the photographs that you looked absolutely beautiful in that dress. Do you really think a custom-made ball gown is entirely necessary in the middle of the Depression? Mm. You know, she was not just an adoring fan. She was also um, a girl who had grown up on the wrong side of the tracks her whole life. So I knew nothing or very little about Lorena Hickok, despite, just as you're saying, having read... Eleanor Roosevelt's own writing, her columns that she had put together um, in her book, all the Blanche, Weizen Cook biographies, you you know, anything there was to read about her. And I had no sense of her. So there was a line that Lorena uses saying, her Hyde Parkness, my, my South Dakota gloom, her propriety, my brass knuckles. So tell us a little bit about Lorena Hickok's background. She grows up very poor. Um, her mother dies when she is 13. Her father has been unsuccessful in a wide range of occupations in the Midwest. So he's been a butter maker. For a little while, he was a barber. Then he became a traveling salesman. You know, so not stellar. Mm. Um, they had a brief happy period in Wisconsin. Then they're in South Dakota. She is the oldest. She has two little sisters, Myrtle and Ruby. Um, she's raped by her father right after her mother's death. And then um, she doesn't say a lot about what he does after the rape, but she's sent out to work as a hired girl in which you could go live with a family. Um, you would get up early. You would get the household going. Not all these people had indoor plumbing. You would get everything underway, feed the babies, take care of things, run to school, do your classroom, run home as soon as the bell rang, and then take care of the family until it was time for bed. And then she just took off. She did. She, so she worked as a hired girl, although she says consistently in all of her writing about herself that she was a terrible housekeeper and that nobody in their right mind would have hired her as a maid, that she had neither the skills nor the attitude to be of service. Um, and she did take off. And in the novel, what's nice for me is that there's a period as she is a little bit older, and she's about 15, um, and there's a bit of a blank in her in mm. her biography. So I got to fill that in with her joining up with the circus. So yeah. is that one of the reasons that you used fiction rather than writing a biography of Eleanor and Lorena so that you could fill in those kinds of things? You know, I think these things are a little overdetermined. I wrote fiction because I'm a novelist. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Because I'm not a journalist. I also, as you saw, did not put it in sonnet form because yeah. I don't know how to do that either. Right. I wanted – all that I am interested in is people and their stories and more interested in things that are true than things that are facts. And this novel struck me as a possibility. I actually didn't know – I know this sounds ridiculous. I didn't know that there was a genre called his, historical fiction. I just didn't understand that. It yeah. had not occurred to me. And do you like the word historical fiction or biofiction better? I th- or don't you care? I, of course, think of them as novels. Yeah. But that's me. You know, it's like I... What difference does it make? Right. I mean, I, I understand that it does make a difference to people, yeah. to, to some readers, that there should be real people in the narrative. It hadn't occurred to me that that had its own special quality. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say probably 75% of all novels produced are in some sense historical in that they are not set 
in 2017 or 2018. They are set in 1960 mm-hmm. or they are set yeah. in 1875 or they are set in 1743 because most novels do not take place right in the immediate contemporary world. Yeah. I mean, you know, and War you, and Peace was a historical novel. And you know what's funny that, that you say that? So I generally don't like historical fiction, not because I don't like reading a lot of it. I do. I always get troubled by not knowing what's factual and what's made up. So one of the things that was interesting to me reading White Houses is I knew enough history to know contextually this was accurate, right? Plus, I called you up all the time to say, is this accurate? (laughs) But not everybody's going to be able to call you up. So I thought historical fiction, and I don't know why, this is based on like just sort of a visceral reaction, is not how I would describe the book. Well, it's not how I would describe it, clearly, because I don't know much about it. But I think in terms of the history, I mean, as I say in a note, I mean, I've done my best, but I have not changed the time or the unfolding of the Depression right. or of the war or of America's response to the war. Or, or the times Eleanor and Lorena were a couple in the time they no. were friends and the time that they were separate. No, my goal was to sort of enter this real world and create a narrative that could sort of illuminate it without altering Mm. the facts. I love that language, Amy. (laughs) You want to think about this as like a real full-time career. I know, not just a hobby. I'm I'm with you. So here's one of the first things I called you about to find out if it was factual. So uh, the book opens in April of 1945, right after... Franklin has died, and then goes back and forth in the years of their uh, Eleanor and Lorena's uh, relationship. So they meet shortly before Franklin is elected president in the early 30s, and they move in, Eleanor and Franklin move into the White House, and Lorena moves in in an adjoining sitting room to Eleanor in the White House. Yep. So I had a couple of reactions to that, and, and I have a couple of questions. One is I was, con- I was curious if that was true. Absolutely true. Totally true. The second question was, what would be the reaction today if somebody moved into an adjoining bedroom to either the first lady or the president in the White House? And B, does the fact that that would... I assume your answer would be, but you'll tell me, explosive. Are we measuring the right things that make somebody a good president or a good first lady inaccurately? Well, I think those are two somewhat different questions. I think that um, I don't know that it would be explosive now. Mm. I mean, I think that the new normal requires a fairly high tolerance for the explosive and the astonishing on a daily basis. So maybe... You it know. wouldn't be explosive. Yeah, maybe it'd be explosive, but maybe people would just think like, well, it's da-da-da, or, oh, that's fake news, or who can blame Melania, mm-hmm. or whatever it is that yeah. they would say. Yeah. But I think it's human nature to, to gossip and to judge, right. and I don't think that that's new. I think people have been pretty much hard at it for thousands of years. But I think one of the reasons that it was really interesting for me to write about Franklin is that he's such a compelling character. Mm. I mean, the reason that, for me, I could see these, what I felt were sort of very limited portraits of Eleanor when I would read the biographies of Franklin, partially because he took up all the air. He took all the air. I mean, my goodness. Right. You know, utterly charming, utterly blithe, deeply committed, hardworking, lied like he breathed, you know, looked you right in the eye and said, absolutely, this is the only bookstore I will ever Mm. read in as long as I live. And by the time you had walked out of the room, he would have renegotiated. It's it's what people say about Bill Clinton. Yes. Yes. I think that those are very um, similar personalities in lots of ways. I would also say that once he had polio, Roosevelt became um, an enormously disciplined person. Mm just very, very mindful. So Franklin knew Lorena was in the adjoining sitting room. He, he obviously also had his own array of infidelities. 
what was the relationship between Franklin and Lorena on Franklin's part and on Lorena's part? Well, there's not a lot written about it. Mm. My vision of it is that these are complicated people. Mm. Franklin knew and hung out with a lot of Eleanor's friends, and most of Eleanor's friends were lesbians. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea that these were people who were simply so Victorian, they wouldn't know a lesbian if they saw her coming down the street. Going back to her grade school Her boarding school in England, not to make a judgment. Her headmistress of her English boarding school was such a famous French lesbian (laughs) that Natalie Barney and three other very fancy French lesbians wrote novels about her. Mademoiselle Souvest. She is just the hot ticket. And takes Eleanor on a trip through Europe when Eleanor is 17 years old, just the two of them, to educate her, buys her dresses, teaches her fancy French manners, helps her brush up on her German, French, and Italian. And the idea that Franklin and Eleanor never knew that any of these women were lesbians is just like is hilarious and so i think this is like willful blindness well willful blindness on the part of the biographers there's nothing to suggest that Franklin franklin or eleanor were willfully blind it didn't enter into it much for franklin franklin's interest in women was either political which is you know you are for me or against me right or extremely personal which is how attracted are you to me and One of the things I really wanted to convey is that he was a very attractive person. It's Mm. not just that, oh, you know, the ladies liked him, although the ladies did like him, but that regardless of your sexuality, he was a pretty irresistible guy. And I think that was true for Lorena as well. She admired him with all her heart. Mm. And I think to be madly in love with the wife of a man you admire with all your heart is a tough road to hoe. Yeah. You know, the thing that it made me think about a lot, and I, and, I, and I struggle with the answer to this, is to what degree should the personal lives of our politicians matter to us? And I can make an argument for they matter greatly. It makes them vulnerable to blackmail or it makes them um, compromise their judgment to – it's their personal lives. They're, if they're running the country or the state or whatever – what should it have anything to do with how we think of them as, as elected officials? When, as you were thinking about this reading about Franklin's relationships and Eleanor, did that, how did that make you think about all those issues, particularly with what's going on now? Well, I did find myself thinking about it. I think the longer I'm alive and the longer I read history, the more I think character is destiny. Mm. And even if you have an affair or you make an error in judgment, your character emerges. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that um, it's very important. It's not important to me personally Mm -hmm. to have a president, male or female, um, who is strictly monogamous in their marriage. That's not my primary concern Mm -hmm. about a president. The character of the president is extremely important to me the overall character of the human being. And there are some people who are so awesome that um, their character prevails even in the most tempting or difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who do a pretty good job and some people who do a terrible job. And I don't want somebody who actually has no personal values um, that I share as my president. Somebody else might feel different. Right, right. I don't know. I'm torn because, and maybe it's maybe it's because my view of monogamy is like I consider that like the first betrayal. Well, I think that monogamy. I mean, certainly, if you have committed in your relationship to being monogamous and you're not, that's a lousy thing to do. Right. And I'm not a fan of it. On the other hand, I think it's very possible for people to betray their partners without ever without getting into doing, bed absolutely. with somebody else. So that's why I say to me. It's really an overall view of the person's character. And you get the feeling from what I've read about Eleanor and Franklin and reading this book that this worked for both of them. Yes, I mean, I think it did work. I think it was complicated. I think that there were clearly times when Franklin really wished that Eleanor would stay home and take care of him and be more like Missy and more like Lucy and more like Princess Martha. And she knew that. She said, oh, Franklin is happiest when he has 12 servant girls dancing around him. 
You know, she knew, she knew her customer, and she could not be that person, which is why she was very supportive of the relationship that his secretary, Missy Lahan, played in his life. She was not a cruel person. She could be pretty chilly when yeah. she was when she was put out, but she understood. But very accommodating. She understood. I think more than accommodating. She actually picked Missy Lahan. She wasn't just accommodating. She saw her. Missy was uh, working in Massachusetts for a Democratic campaign. She met her. She liked her. She thought that would work out very well. It was not an accident, and she didn't just have to get used to it. She engineered it. Interesting. I know. These were interesting people. One of the things that I was taken aback by is the arc of their relationship. So they meet. They have an intimate relationship for a period of time, and then they break up. What contributed to their breaking up? And then they got back together and broke up, and what what were the drivers of that? I think some famous writers about marriage have said that in every long marriage, you get divorced a hundred times. Mm. All that matters is that you get remarried a hundred and one times. Yeah. So I think if they had been married... It would have been less Just surprising to flowed. us that we would have seen the ebb and the flow. But because they didn't have any structures containing themselves, when the passion started to wane after several years and it was clear not only that Eleanor was not going to leave Franklin, but that even Lorena didn't want her to leave right. Franklin. And then periodically Eleanor would say, oh, I'm just going to leave him. And Lorena would say, you can't. Um, that it was an untenable situation for them, mm. that, that to be that much in love and have to keep it that secret and have so little support for yeah. it was really a hardship. And also Eleanor was somebody who took her obligations very seriously. I mean, she took her obligations as first lady. She took her obligations as a political leader. She also took her obligations to her family, which was very large, quite seriously. She also had her gorgon of a mother-in-law running around for much of that time. Oh, there was a great line um, where you have Lorena saying, um, speaking of Sarah Delano Roosevelt, she sniffs, chilly and disappointed. That sniff is the way she's most like her late grandmother. She's talking about Anna. Anna. Mm -hmm. uh, Is most like her late grandmother, my least favorite person. I would rather have sat naked in a steam bath with Franklin than had tea with Sarah Delano Roosevelt. Yeah, she she was a lot to bear. She was a lot to bear and had a very strong sense of her own entitlement and her own power, and she held the purse strings. I mean, it was not Franklin's money. It was Sarah's money. And did she ever let go of it until she died? No. And, And her death was a terrible loss for Franklin. As far as I can tell, not so much for other people. But uh, he grieved very hard. Hmm. And would you say, because they both had other relationships, would you say that they were the loves of each other's life? Lorena and Eleanor? Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. I would say so. I mean, Eleanor never had another relationship like the one she had with Lorena, in which she was so vulnerable and so open, and in which which it was so reciprocal. Yeah. I mean, Eleanor was sort of a natural mentor. She always had protégés. She was often drawn to sort of charming, clever, idealistic young men. Those were some of her favorite people to be around. But those were not truly reciprocal relationships. With Mm. Lorena, you know, they'd be like two ladies taking a walk, going for a walk in the leaves, having a cup of tea, having a sherry, reading poetry to each other tucking each other in at night, and that she never had with anybody else. And I think for Lorena, she did go on and have another relationship um, with the judge who I write about, Marion Harron, who um, was wildly in love Mm. with Lorena, who really valued the relationship, but it was very clear that it was not the same thing for her. Yeah, you know, one of the parts of the book that I read about three times was the trip that Eleanor and Lorena took up the main coast they sort of like snuck out yeah, and they, they didn't have the secret service. they didn't have secret service you're writing about that trip both the route that they took the places they went the way in which they behaved felt to me like the most free idyllic tender thing that you could read about was was that something that you ba- – that was a real trip that Absolutely. took, right? And so how did you recreate what went on on that trip? Well, I think 
you know, in in this sense, you know, a novel is a novel, which is that you imagine, well, what is it like to be mm-hmm. two middle-aged women who have never been wildly in love before, who have managed to ditch, escape <laughs> escape the White House, ditch the Secret Service. They don't have cell phones. They're not constantly tethered back to home. You know, and you are. You there were credit cards no, to trace them, and you've been given permission. Well, they were be, they were given permission. I mean, Franklin and the, the head of the Secret Service actually met with them and say, "We're worried that you're going to be abducted." And you know, Lorena was not a small woman; she was mm. like five nine and quite quite sturdy. And Eleanor is five eleven, and they were like, "Really? Were they going to put us in a trunk?" <laughs> At which point, the Secret Service was like, "All right, go have a good time." So off they go. So. I think if you are having a wildly passionate affair for the first time in your life, you are in your 40s and you have been given permission yeah. by the President of the United States to go have a good time, it's just a gorgeous golden time for the two of them. And it is really – it is the foundation for them and is the thing that, of course, they keep wanting to go back to, as we all do. You always yeah. want to go back to that gorgeous – those halcyon days – yeah. How did you feel about both of them when you were done with the book? Well, I, you know, I love them. Mm-hmm. I, I, the truth is, you know, I kind of have a crush on Franklin. I get that. Um, Lorena is just my kind of girl. You yeah. Know, she's just straight talking. She's a pistol. And, um, you know. And a great journalist. And a great journalist. I mean, her work, um, first of all, her work on the Depression is unbelievably moving and insightful. That and scene, describe the scene Amy in the book, um, where during during Hoover's time, where she reports on uh, the event that was in D.C. with the veterans. Oh yeah, that was that was shocking. You know, you asked me earlier what surprised me. That was shocking to me. I didn't know anything about it. So uh, there are a very large group of World War One veterans, like seventeen thousand of them, and they were entitled to bonuses for additional service and things like that. And the United States government had not paid them, and we were having hard times, and so we didn't pay them. And these people needed the money because it was a depression. Yeah. And they were veterans, and they set up shanties, you know, little tar paper shacks on the mall in front of the White House. And Hoover couldn't get them to go away, and so he called out the Washington, D.C. police, and they couldn't get them to go away. These are veterans not getting benefits promised to them. Yes, United States Army veterans. Yeah, yeah. and I would say, and if you think that that could never happen again, it must be that you don't read history. So they are gathered on the National Mall with their tar paper shacks, with their wives and children, their pots and pans, their linens hanging out, their little bonfires to cook their food. And when the um, Metropolitan Police can't move them out, Hoover calls in General MacArthur, somebody who I will have to say does not cover himself with glory in history, um, who brings in tanks and the cavalry and fires upon the veterans, killing two. Then they set fire to the shacks and run everybody out. So you have the veterans scooping up their wives, their children, their belongings, and running out of the National Mall, which has now been set on fire. Um, And she covered all of that. And she was a fearless reporter also. Wasn't there a piece that she wrote about accusing or suspecting Lindbergh of trying to cover up information yes, on the she kidnapping. She couldn't actually write it. She ended up leaving the story after a while because she felt so strongly that there were just too many suspicious things. And her editor, who I think really valued her as a reporter, was like, no good Best is going no to come of this. Mm. She was fearless. It was a great loss to her that by the time we were in World War II, she was just not in good enough shape physically to be running around the battlefield. As battle a war fields. reporter. Yeah. You know, she was kind of an older lady. She had diabetes. She wasn't, you know, she, she said she wasn't nimble enough to be a war correspondent. But it's not that she wouldn't have liked to have been. Well, a- Amy, in closing and talking to you about this book, there's a couple things I'd like to bring up. You know, I always feel when I read your books that my brain is like slightly rearranged with understanding of something. And I think, you know, as someone who's been an avid fan of Eleanor Roosevelt, reading this book just made me feel an affection for her and Lorena that was just a step deeper than any I've had. And it also 
it feels like such an optimistic book to me about the potential that people have for relationships. You know, whether it doesn't make any difference, you know, the gender, but just the potential for people feeling loved that you write about in this book that's just visceral. You know, just it it just fills your heart to think that that can be experienced and to understand that it can. So I want to thank you for that. And so USA Today came out today and called your book Irresistibly Audacious. I would say it is irresistibly audacious, but it's also just the loveliest of writing. And to me, that's what you always deliver, Amy. So thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you for writing this book. And I'm excited to hear about your tour. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to today's guests. Make sure to pick up a copy of Amy Bloom's White Houses, which is out now, and check out Bustle.com. And for a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keo. Thank you all so much for listening.